go from strength to strength, not only in the successful launch of your book, The Success Myth, The Success Myth. (laughs) That could be my second book. (laughs) That should be your second book. You are listening to The Arrived Podcast, episode number 57. Hello, lovelies. I'm Bethany Reed Peterson, and you are listening to Arrived, the podcast all about helping you find your voice, tell your story, and create space for what matters. As an interior designer and now a coach, I've discovered that no matter who we are, we've all got one goal in common. We all want to feel like we've arrived. All right, gang, you know by now that I love nothing more than celebrating my outspoken friends on the pod. And let me tell you, today is no exception. I have been wanting to get my guest on the show today, Rachel Hills, onto Arrived since it launched back in 2019. But our schedules just never freaking aligned, which in hindsight, I'm actually so, so grateful for because there is no better time to celebrate a woman like Rachel than, of course, during Women's History Month. And let me tell you why. Rachel is a feminist writer, producer, entrepreneur, and creator based in Brooklyn. Rachel's work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Vogue, BuzzFeed, The Cut, and many, many more. She has spoken at more than 20 colleges and universities across the United States, delivered two popular TEDx talks, and has keynoted at Harvard Sex Week and the Sydney Opera House. Little venue. Maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) She is the author of The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality, and the founder of Power Bitches Gather, a high-touch peer support network for powerful, progressive women. And she also runs a feminist strategic communications consultancy called Protagonistic. Now, on a personal note, I just love Rachel's warmth, her sincerity, and her quiet confidence that really speaks volumes to the many, many gorgeous, beautiful, powerful women that surround her. So without further ado, my lovelies, let's crack on speaking with my beautiful, talented, and altogether unstoppable friend, Miss Rachel Hills. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on to Arrived today. It's my pleasure to welcome an old friend to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. You know, it's so interesting because like, I think the last time I saw you was New York around 2016, mm-hmm. and you had just moved there at that point. And of course, we knew each other from a co-working space in London. And it's been so fun to watch you, even from afar, go from strength to strength, not only in the successful launch of your book, The Sex Myth, but now also with Power Bitches, this amazing community which you founded for women. So you're no stranger to having a voice. So maybe tell me a little bit about that story to becoming a writer and and feeling like you could be putting yourself out there. Like, What was that impetus to say, do you know what? I want to start writing. 
Mm, great question. So I I grew up in Sydney, Australia, which is where my accent is from. And I was always, as a kid, into reading and into creating stories as well. And um, I, I always had an interest in journalism, which is where, what I spent the first part of my career doing. But I think that as a child, I didn't really understand what journalists did. I remember sometimes, uh, you know, playing pretend with my younger sister. I'm like, let's be journalists. And then I would just sit there and not know where to take the game next. But I started thinking about it more seriously as a career when I was in high school because I'd, I'd started this kind of pop culture website about the band Hanson from the 90s. <laughs> well, you recall, you, which obviously you do because we're about the same yeah, age. I used to love that band. And, <laughs> well, clearly so did I. It was a bit of a love-hate relationship. Sure. And... Um, you know, the internet was also new at that time. So my friends and I at high school had discovered this Hanson fan thick on the internet and we just thought it was the funniest, most ridiculous thing. So I decided to start writing a satire of it and putting it on the internet and then writing my pop culture commentary on all the bands at the time. And I guess I, I enjoyed doing that so much that it suddenly occurred to me as you, as an older teenager trying to you know reach around for a career that perhaps this was a career that I could pursue, like that I could actually write for a living. And um, that was what led me to enroll in a media and communications degree at Sydney University, where I was an editor on the student magazine. I did lots of political reporting. Um, I also got really into feminism and kind of contradictorily, but also kind of related. I got into women's magazines at the same time. And it was all those experiences that I had at university that led me into starting my career as a journalist. So when I met you, you were very thick into the middle of writing your book, The Sex Myth. And what is interesting, I suppose, from this sort of spectator's point of view is getting this kind of behind the scenes look, so to speak, at just what it takes actually to not just write, but and to show up literally every day at your laptop with a blank page, but to actually really write a book and to commit yourself to that. And I think that there is this sort of common misconception that not necessarily that writing a book is easy, but it is this lofty goal for many people who do have a written voice, so to speak. But I got to watch you be very real in that process. So tell me more about how that book came to be and and what you know your actual perspective of writing a book was. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think that people both perceive writing a book as being a lofty goal and they also see it as something that's relatively simple, like you should be able to pump it out in three months, maybe six. Uh, in the archives of my old blog, I when, I when I started talking about writing a book, I think I imagined it would take maybe an entire year to write. And mm -hmm. of course, it ended up taking me, I think, six years to write in total. So it was a very, very long process. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know that it took six years. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of research and also a lot of procrastination. <laughs> Bedfellows, really. 
Yeah, they, they, they are bedfellows. Our research can be a great form of procrastination. But yeah, I think when you and I met, I must have been about 10 years into my writing career already. And so I wasn't, I wasn't new to it and I already had a really established voice. And I mean, we were in London when we met, but I especially mm-hmm. had quite an established voice um, in Australia at that time. And when we met, I also was, I must have been a year or two into my book deal. Uh, which was with a US publisher, Simon and & Schuster. And so because I'd started writing for newspapers in Australia when I was 22 or 23, I'd very quickly established a voice there and I was really lucky because I think Australia can be really supportive of its own people. Mm-hmm. That only a couple of years in my career, into my career, publishers started approaching me saying, hey, if you ever want to write a book, please come to us and we'd be interested in publishing it, which is, of course, a really dream situation for any writer to be in. So that was what first planted the idea of writing a book in my head. And at that point, I was only in my mid-20s and I toyed with a lot of very bad ideas for books, um, but fortunately did not pitch any of them. And then when I came up with the idea for The Sex Myth when I was about 25, it was clear to me a bit like when you meet the love of your life, that this was the one, like this was the real idea that was actually going to make a good book rather than just having a book under my name. Mm-hmm. And I'd, you know, at that point in my life, which is probably why it resonated, why the idea really struck me so much, um, I was really insecure about my sexual history. Like I felt, I felt like there was a really sharp disjunct between the person that I tried to present myself as being in the world who was, uh, you know, popular and cool and attractive and could have anything she wanted and the person who I felt that I was on the inside, which was, uh, you know, this unattractive loser with something indefinably wrong with her. And for me, as for so many people in their 20s, sex was really the locus of that. And I was also a really big fan of feminist nonfiction. And although obviously sexuality has been written a lot in feminism, mm-hmm. this idea of a book that looked at the meaning of sex felt like something that didn't exist and like something that I would really personally want to read and benefit from. The way that I'd benefited from Naomi Wolf's Beauty Myth, which I obviously pay homage to in the title uh, when I read that book at university. So, you know, it was a long journey and I started out by enrolling in a PhD because I felt like understanding the subject matter would help me with that. I never completed the PhD, although obviously I did complete the book. Did a bunch of academic research, reading all of the existing research in sociology and philosophy and cultural studies to try and understand what other people had said about this topic. And I also interviewed a couple of hundred people and, um, you know, took after a couple of years of research, took another year to write a book proposal, sold it to Simon & Schuster. Um, I'm making all this sound way simpler than it is. (laughs) I don't know if you are. I don't know if you are actually. And I I think I'm like, wow, it took a year to do a proposal. But that's just the reality of it sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it might not have taken quite a year. I think I started working on the proposal in January of 2011 or February, and I sold the book in November. Okay. So that, but I'd been researching the subject for two years by the time that I started working on the proposal. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, what every aspiring writer dreams of is that moment when you get the book deal, which is really amazing. And it's a great affirmation. And I look forward to getting my second book deal sometime this year and I'll celebrate that as well. But I think what I didn't anticipate when I was doing that first book was the fact that getting the book deal isn't crossing the finishing line. It's just the beginning 
of another long you then actually have to finish writing the book Mm. which turns out is a lot harder than writing a newspaper or magazine article uh yes I would imagine so I mean for many reasons if if nothing else for the fact that you know presumably you have this publisher giving you an advance and it's like then the pressure is on Yes, exactly. And, you know, I'd never done it before. And I think like any first-time author, I remember a couple of months after I got got the book deal, I'm like, oh, shit, I have to deliver on this. And am I actually going to be capable of doing it? And, of course, it turns out I was. And, you know, everybody who gets a book deal is. It's the persistence that gets you there. But, yeah, so you have to deliver on it. And it's just the length and the amount of ideas and sentences that you have to tie together. It's just a completely different undertaking than even a 3,000-word article. And it's also, I think, the thing I found toughest about it was actually the patience that it demanded of me. Hmm. In what regard? Well, as I said, I think for any writer or aspiring writer, the act of getting the book deal, and particularly, you know, for me, Simon and Schuster, as I wrote on my blog at the time, was like the George Clooney of publishers. It wasn't just getting a book deal, but like the best book deal was how I saw it. So you feel like you're crossing the finishing line there. And for me, I think I put, you know, in in the part of this interview that you're going to edit out where you called my book The Success Myth, I, I really bought into the success myth as well as the sex myth. So I had placed so much weight on this book coming out. Like I felt like when my book came out, that was going to be the moment that I would be recognized in the world for the brilliant genius that I was. And I I think when the book sold at the end of 2011, I remember meeting with my editor and she's like, in the best case scenario, your book will come out in the fall of 2013. So in my head, I'm like, well, it's going to come out in the fall of 2013. And then when it didn't come out till the summer of 2015 and all the delays and things like that, which are really common with major publishers, uh, everyone I know practically who's had that kind of big book deal has had about a four-year process from selling the book to it landing on the shelves but there is this this kind of sadness about things not happening in the timing that you want it to and that was mm-hmm. actually I think a really important growth opportunity for me that's a really interesting point yes you're right it's like you do have this timeline in mind and even if it has nothing to do with your own procrastination like you say things just happen in the literary publishing world where it's beyond your control. But suddenly now it's like you've put forth all of this time and effort and energy into creating this thing and it's delayed for whatever reason. So I suppose, yes, you're right. Like having that sense of patience and that sense of fortitude and just showing up every single day for those pages until the book is completed. And then, like you're saying, once it's done, then waiting some more yeah, and having that mental fortitude to just hang back and wait for its release. Yeah. I mean, I think I had to learn to accept that my, to believe, not just accept, but to believe that my life was good, even if this thing that I wanted more than anything else, which was for my book to be published, hadn't happened yet. Like my life was still worthy and my, and I was still good, even if this thing hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and the reception of it was was wonderful in the yeah. end. Yeah. And I mean, I thought it was a wonderful analysis of the realities, you know, speaking of voice, right? Like the things that we're not talking about, which is what is really going on 
in our bedrooms when, or we're not going on, I should say, when we are maybe telling the world that our sex life is more active than it is, or we we have this perception that other people's sex lives are more active uh, or fulfilling than ours are. So for anyone who's not yet read the book, please go out and read it. It is an incredible, I know it was a labor of love for you, and I think it's turned out so very well. And and now, you know, aside from writing as well, I know that you have co-founded this amazing organization called Power Bitches. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Power Bitches. Sure, absolutely. So Power Bitches came out of a couple of things. One is the fact that I've always been an avid connector and an avid networker. An avid networker and an avid connector of people might be a better way to phrase that. Like I love to meet new and interesting people and I love to have meaningful conversations with them, clearly like yourself, which is why you run this podcast. And I felt really frustrated with a lot of the events that I was going to in New York City and I'm sure, frankly, around the world, it's not just a New York thing, where things are framed as being about networking connection but really they're much more a kind of consumption experience where you go to see somebody speak, you maybe talk to the person next to you if you're outgoing um, Mm. and it's really the luck of the draw whether or not you connect with them and then you leave and it's it's quite a passive experience. And I also in New York was meeting all these brilliant women who I loved to spend time with. And I wanted there to be a kind of networking or community container where I could meet more of those women. That was part of my motivation. I'm like, networking can be done a lot better. So I I wanted to do it better. And uh, the other part of my motivation came from things that were happening in my career at the time. The Sex Myth published in 2015, a year after I moved to New York. Um, And lots of cool things happened out of that. I traveled around the United States speaking on college campuses. Uh, One of the students at one of the very first campuses I spoke at, uh, Hannah Larson, came to me a few months later and she wanted to turn my book into a play. And she did that on her campus in 2016. And I loved her work. And then we worked together to turn it into an off-Broadway play, which we took to New York in 2017, just after my son was born. I did the fundraising while I was pregnant, and then the play went up after he was born. Wow. But what was happening here was this transition where I'd spent so much of my career as a journalist, um, either working for publications or as a freelance writer, um, and I'd kind of burned out on that. Transitioning from being a journalist into being more of a social entrepreneur. So trying to create not just a book, which is hard enough by itself, and or, or an article or, or selling that to a publication, but trying to create an institution. So with the Sexsmith Play, uh, we were looking at how can we turn this into this activist tool that could be taken around the country and around the world. And that required this kind of whole new energy and this whole new capacity from me. It really stretched me. It meant that I really had to figure out money, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, freelance journalism is a terrible industry in which to make money. So it's not like I was doing that well financially in that industry anyway, but at least it was a clear sense of how it worked. You'd sell an article and you get paid. But in this sense, like I really needed some philanthropic or investment dollars in order to make this project work. And I felt a bit out of my depth. And I wanted to create a community where my amazing women friends and I, and then other people along with us, could come together to talk about these really thorny questions that we were all trying to figure out in our work. 
And so Power Bitches was that. It was created as a space for connection, but also as a space for us to collectively figure out these incredibly ambitious creative or business or social change projects we were working on together. I love the fact that you took this need and this sort of gap, I suppose, in the industry of, of networking. And I say that very loosely. These networking things, a lot of the time, just they feel very canned. And so I love that you are addressing that need for women, especially to come together and feel like they can honestly ask questions, address um, any concerns that they have in their own business and really feel like they're part of not only just a networking event, but really part of another community of women with like-minded goals. And I suppose, you know, like conflicts in their own, in their own business and, and, and working together. And you're right. Running a business is a very, very different thing than a creative output in which you're right. Like you're selling an article or you're writing a book and like, yes, of course you are getting paid for that. And you are in the business of your IP in that. But it's like you mentioned, you know, when you're organizing events and maybe you are contracting out people to help on those events, it's a totally different ball game. What do you think the biggest challenge was for you in, in I suppose, making that shift then from a freelance journalist then into running this organization? Was there anything that like was the biggest curveball for you? Oh, I mean, there are a couple. I think that part of it uh, was was figuring out pricing, and that's really a challenge across all of my businesses. So I, I kind of run three right now. So I also run a consulting business called Protagonistic as well, where I do communications uh, for feminist organizations and entrepreneurs and nonprofits. I have Power Bitches, of course, and um, I have the Break the Sex Myth Project. And I think that while freelance journalism, for example, is, as I said before, horribly paid. Both the downside and the upside of it is that you don't really have any control over how much you're paid. Theoretically, you can negotiate, but the publication holds all the cards. Whereas when you're running your own business, you set the prices. Yes. And that can be a wonderful opportunity because you're in control and you can set the prices, but also the figuring out what you should price your labor at or your product at is a really interesting, again, I'm going to say interesting and complex kind of intellectual and business challenge and one that I enjoy thinking about on the intellectual level. And then I think the the emotional challenge um, is that, you know, I as I said, like I had a very successful career as a freelance journalist and I'd thought at the time that that career had kind of inured me to rejection because it's just part of the game. You sell the pitch, you send the pitch, some people reject you, some people accept you. And I'd gotten enough experience in that game that I didn't really take it. I didn't take it personally if somebody rejected a pitch because I still thought my idea was good and just someday I would find the right person and they would pick it up. And that's generally what happened. But I felt like with starting my own business, for some reason, it just felt so much more personal to me. Like I had a harder time handling the rejections mm-hmm. um, or when things were not as successful as I wanted them to be. Maybe it's because you'd had a lot of you know accolades and external positive feedback from that writing career. Now when you're doing something totally different, it's like a new frontier on a level. I think you're right. I think it is a lot about the new frontier. And I think it's partly that because this was a new area for me where I didn't at first 
feel like I had the level of legitimacy that I'd had in my my previous arena of work. It was it was scary to step into that, but I also think that it was it was partly the scope of the challenge and that it required me to do a whole bunch of inner work on myself that you know even this previous feat of writing a book which at times did destroy me emotionally did not seem to require but that's ultimately a positive because I've come out of it much stronger than I was say 10 years ago yes absolutely well it is it's an interesting challenge isn't it because it's like Mm-hmm. It's a totally different business model, and we're asked to do completely different things, wear totally different hats and many different hats is what I should say when it comes to running a more traditional business versus a different business model in let's say freelance journalism, for example, or you know selling books to Simon and Schuster, as I know you did so yeah and i and I think anyone who's listening to this is going to be able to relate precisely to what you're saying insofar as it really, running a business does really make you take a step back and actually go inside of yourself and figure some things out, whether you're a solopreneur or you have a co-founder or you have a whole team of people. Running a business and being an entrepreneur, especially a, a, you know, a woman entrepreneur, and like I know that there's this uh, discussion of like we should just stop saying like a female entrepreneur because, you know, we don't make that distinction with men, but I do think that women face particular challenges when it comes to entrepreneurship. And I do sometimes think that a lot of those challenges are that of mindset that we sometimes second guess ourselves. Yeah. Mindset is definitely part of it. Um, I think that we are socialized to have, we're socialized to have less confidence in ourselves or to be less likely to see our own worth. Uh, like if you think of the the cliche of the straight white man, but it's also true of many straight white men who I know and love. There is that greater socialized innate sense of confidence, particularly once you have the track record to back it up. Whereas, you know, all throughout my life and probably less now than I did when I was in my early 20s, you know, I, I, you see over and over again these amazing women who have all of these accomplishments under their belt but still have this fear that maybe they're not good enough. And I also think, though, it's not just our own mindset. It's also the fact that we live in a society that does undervalue women's labor, whether it's in the really clear and uh, explicitly undervalued and literally underpaid labor of the work that's done in the home, like housework or childcare, or whether it is, you know, businesses that are owned by women, um, like actual paid work that's done by women, where you know, even for people who are really intentionally creating these scalable companies, they'll still often get feedback uh, from investors or this perception that what they're doing is just a hobby and so that it doesn't need to fully sustain them. Or, you know, I see with other friends that I've had, and I'm sure I've experienced it myself as well, where people think that if you're doing something because you want to have a social impact, then that means that that work does not need to be paid. That's a really good point. But actually, you can't make the social impact um, unless you also have the monetary fuel to support yourself and the other people working on it. Yes. You know, I remember that from working alongside other social entrepreneurs at the co-working space that you and I were at. There was this sort of undercurrent of, well, we're not a for-profit company. We want to have a social impact, as if the two are mutually exclusive. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think you bring up a really wonderful point there. We can be a for-profit business and make a huge 
difference in the lives of others or in the lives of, you know, communities. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, like we need to be able to pay fair wages and salaries to the people that we contract, the people we employ, and we need to be able to pay ourselves fairly mm-hmm. for our intellectual property, for our execution of our events in the case of power bitches, and for everything that you know we are contributing professionally to the world. And also, that's even true if you're running a nonprofit as well. Like, just because an organization is a nonprofit, that doesn't mean that they don't have to pay all of their staff. Like, they still need to have a revenue source. They just don't have profit on top of the revenue that they use to cover their overheads and staffing. Right. That's an excellent point. You know, as much as it is amazing to to create and to connect and to have, you know, whether it's discussions or we write or we host events or we do anything that we're doing, it, we, it has to be something that's sustainable, financially sustainable at the end of the day. So on this, is there a universal challenge that you find that your membership faces or is there sort of a continual issue that keeps coming up at your events? I think one of the most common issues that our members face goes back to the conversation that you and I were just having about sustainability. Uh, The reality is, you know, our members are really incredible women who are creating companies that help people, who are creating nonprofits, it's all social issues, who are creating, you know, books and films and music that are influencing the culture. So they're, they're, you know, they're power bitches in the sense that they're bringing things into the world through their own sheer force of will and might. Um, And they're doing things that really have impact. But I think that something that almost all of our members struggle with is creating that financial model around their work that sustains themselves and sustains the work that they're trying to do as well, because you can't sustain the work if the people working on it are not also being supported. And the struggle of trying to do that in in a world that, that doesn't necessarily value the labor of women and that particularly doesn't financially value the labor of women who are working in the arts and social justice. And kind of on a separate note to that, but I think on a kind of more poignant political point, because I I can anticipate potentially some of the counter arguments that people listening to this might have, which is this idea, but you know, if you're doing something that you care about for the joy of it, then you don't deserve to get paid. Like you get paid if you do work that you really hate. I I feel like that's an argument that people make a lot. But I think about how I've been thinking lately, particularly with all the stuff happening around COVID and the care economy, of the way this argument is often leveraged against women in the care industries. So people say that women working in childcare or women working in social work or women working in nursing don't deserve to earn as much money as women or men who are working in finance or management consulting because, you know, they do the care work uh, because they really love to care for people. And that may be true that they love to care for people, but also the reality is that that care work, and I say this as someone who's sometimes a high-paid consultant, that care work is so much more grueling than working in finance or management consulting. So the idea that people do this incredibly hard taxing work just for the love of it is very, very deeply sexist. Yeah, that is an argument that I take a real issue with. I think it's really troubling to think that, A, well, for anyone to think that we should only charge commensurately for work that we don't enjoy, or conversely, if we do really have a passion for our work, 
that we shouldn't be very well paid for that. Like it somehow diminishes the value that we are bringing to either our clients, our patients, uh, you know, anyone that we are contributing value to, that there is this sort of economy of scale and what you should be able to to charge for that. That is kind of an absurd and and frankly scary argument. And you're right, it is deeply sexist. Well, so tell me now, I know that Power Bitches was founded in New York, and I know that you, well, pre pre-pandemic, you were hosting live in person events. But of course, you know, now the pandemic has changed everything for everyone. So if someone is listening to this and they don't live in New York and they want to get involved or maybe they want to join your membership in your community, can they do that? And who is this specifically for? Yeah, we are specifically for women and non-binary people, mostly because we're just really excited by the work that women and non-binary people are doing. Nothing against men, but we're, we're for women. And we are for women who are builders and creators. So people who are building companies, people who are building nonprofits, people who are building movements, people who are building creative products, people who are really trying to create something out of nothing and displaying the kind of grit and fortitude and determination that's involved in doing that. And also the struggle, let's be real. Right. And the other thing that unites our members is this underlying shared sense of social purpose. So we're not just a group of founders, but we're a group of founders who are creating whatever it is that we're creating because there is some kind of change that we want to see in the world, whether that's around gender, whether it's around racial justice or climate or peace and security. Um, our members work across a range of different issues, but no matter what kind of business or organization they're founding, the central why behind it is that purpose. And I'd say the third thing that we're for is we really are, we're an active community um, rather than, it's not really a consumption experience, but we want people who are joining, who are going to show up and who are going to, you know, join our our twice monthly brains trust to share their own struggles and challenges and ideas and feedback onto other people's ideas as well. And we want people who are going to be active members of the community. So if you're looking for something that you can really be an active member of rather than kind of a passive experience, then we might be the group for you. Amazing. And I know that you will get back to hosting live in-person events again once lockdown is finished, but for now you're running everything online. Is that right? Yeah, we're running everything online and we have members um, all over the world or at least you know, on three different continents. And uh, we run four events per month. So there is still that really active and interactive component to it, even though obviously we're not able to be there together in person due to COVID. But I think that you know, this period of virtual connection has been a benefit as well. It means that people who are in other parts of the United States and around the world can really have access to that full membership experience that otherwise they might have been missing out on. So I think in many ways it's made our community better. And I would imagine too, it's bringing even more dynamic perspectives to the fore. Yes. Because it's people who are living outside of New York. It's now, it's now a global organization. Exactly. And you know, we'd started to move towards that in 2019, but I think 2020 really accelerated it. And you know, when COVID's over, we're going to continue doing the majority of our events digitally for that 
accessibility and for the greater you know networking opportunity beyond people in your own bubble Um, but we'll also be adding back in some in-person events as well to help people you know really develop those friendships with each other amazing well I know listeners are going to want to know where to go to learn more about you and to learn about power bitches so if they are interested Rachel where can they go to learn about power bitches and you and the sex myth and everything that you're doing I have so many links and websites. Um, to learn about Power Bitches, they can go to powerbitches.co or they can find us on Instagram at powerbitches.gather. And if they want to connect with me, my website is rachelhills.net uh, and my preferred social media platform is Instagram where you can find me at Ms. that's M-S, Rachel Hills. And to learn more about The Sex Myth, uh, you can go to our website, which is nice and simply thesexmyth.com. Amazing. And I have included all of those links in the show's description, or I should say the episode's description. So after you have finished listening to this episode, go back and check out Rachel's website and Power Bitches and follow Rachel on Instagram. So finally, Rachel, as we wrap up, Today, what is one thing that listeners out there can do to know they've arrived? It's a great question. And funnily enough, as I was preparing for this interview, I found an old post that I wrote on my old blog called Five Ways to Pass the Time When You're Waiting to Make It, which I wrote just before my book came out. <laughs> and I, you know, I think the key is to appreciate what you have and what you have done rather than always waiting on what you haven't done yet, which is, of course, my constant struggle, which is why I listed it as my tip. But I think that that is really the key, to luxuriate and really sit in appreciation for all the ways in which you have already arrived, rather than judging yourself against the bars that you haven't yet met. I think that is a wonderful arrived tip. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to get caught up in what we haven't achieved? And we forget to think about all the amazing things that we have achieved and are achieving, even if the uh, those external accolades haven't yet come about or we haven't yet, quote unquote, arrived in the traditional sense. Just enjoy it while we have it. So Exactly. And you know, the reality is no matter how much success we have, we always want more. So the only way we're ever going to feel successful is if we focus on the successes that we've, we've actually already got. Such a great point. Such a great point. Thank you, Rachel, for coming on the show today. It has been so fun to reconnect with you and to learn more about Power Bitches and to have listeners really know about everything that you're doing as an author and as a consultant and as a female entrepreneur. So the pleasure has been all mine today. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Arrived. If you'd like to work with me to find your voice, to tell your story, or to create space for what matters, you've got to join me over at atelierreed.com. And be sure to subscribe here so you never miss an episode.